looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. What up? Excuse me while I whip this out. Oh, gnarly! Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. I'm surrounded by assholes. And good evening, friends. Are you annoyingly even keel? E-methamine could be right for you. I have a disease, alright? I need help! E-methamine lets you get gagged up on whoop chicken parts without yellowing one's teeth. Oh, yeah. Contact your doctor today if you experience the following. Oh my god! Increases in blood flow, boost in testosterone, ending of erectile dysfunction. This medicine is made for extreme cases of being even keel or having extreme depression. Ah, come on! Side effects include fits of rage, acne, bleeding in folks around you, whooping cough, hallucinations, comas, trouble swallowing, decrease in semen, increasing amounts of selling yourself, amnesia, night terrors, higher mortgage rates, and increased sensations in not having suicidal urges. Oh my. Thinking your day is bad and really looking to make it worse? Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts there's bound to be injuries. <laughs> now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while in Cell Block 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. Who the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub.
or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. Hey, this is Brett Boone, former Major League All-Star, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Jerry Royce was a Major League Baseball pitcher for 22 years from 1969 to 1990. He won a total of 220 games during his very long career and was fortunate enough to have appeared in two All-Star games in 1975 and 1980 and was able to live every ball player's dream in being able to pitch in games one and five of the 1981 World Series against the Yankees for the World Series champion Los Angeles Dodgers. However, on June 27, 1980, Jerry hit his career-defining moment from a personal standpoint when he pitched a no-hitter against the San Francisco Giants. A little bit of background on Jerry, he pitched for 22 years, and the teams he pitched for was the St. Louis Cardinals from 69 to 71. He pitched for Houston in 72 and 73, the Pittsburgh Pirates from 74 to 78, the LA Dodgers from 79 to 1986, the Cincinnati Reds and Los Angeles Angels in 1987, as well as the Chicago White Sox in 88 and 89, the Milwaukee Brewers in 1989, and the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1990. Jerry Royce finished his career with 220 wins. Introducing Jerry Royce. Even the Giant fans now, you can sense our rooting. Royce got an ovation when he went to the hill to start the inning. Ball one. Eight-nothing Dodgers, but it is Jerry Royce. Little number back to Royce. He picks it up. He's got a no-hitter. Jerry Royce at 31 years old has done it. A no-hitter. He missed a perfect game only by an error by Bill Russell in the first inning. What a magnificent moment for the big blonde. Rick Sutcliffe throwing his arms around him. And all of the Dodgers happy for their player representative who put on a magnificent show. There were three balls that were close. A foul ball by Terry Whitfield. The ground ball by Herndon in the eighth. The ground ball by LeMaster in the eighth. And that's it. Jerry Royce, who was 31 on the 19th of June, celebrates it on the 27th of June. 
with a no-hitter. A magnificent effort. All right, folks. You just heard the clip of this man's no-hitter against the San Francisco Giants. But he's done many things. He's also pitched in a few games in a World Series. Made an all-star team. He's a photographer now. He's done some broadcasting throughout his career post-baseball. Jerry Reese, how are you doing, sir? Doing okay, Glenn. How about you? Uh, best you can with everything that's been going on. Huh? <laughs> well, we'll leave it at that. How about yourself? No complaints. Yeah, nobody listens anyway, I find, anyway. So, so let's jump there with the no-hitter. Uh, what kind of mindset as a pitcher does that is that for you, have going into such a, you know, because nobody really likes to talk about no-hitters or perfect games. And, you know, right, people are very superstitious in baseball. Like, when did you realize you were going into something so special and did you try not to think about it um you know every game i'm aware of how many hits i've given up i'm aware of how many men have been on base Uh, i'm aware of just a lot of things that are going on but uh, to actually put it into a thought that there's the possibility of a no hitter that doesn't become a reality until you get to the middle part of the ball game okay so, uh, well, when you deal with something like that, were you a guy that, and not just that particular game, but in games in general, were you a pitcher that tends to stay to himself, or would you be interacting with your uh, coaches and teammates? But what was your personality like during the day you were pitching? Well, it was a work day. And when yeah. I'm working, the focus is totally on what I have to do. And part of the reason I believe that I lasted so long was that ability to keep that focus, that concentration. So during the two hours plus that I was in the ball game, uh, the focus was there, and I tried to maintain that as best I could. Uh, because once I've discovered that once you lost it, it was it was tough to get back. So. Uh, I kept that focus until the end of the ball game, and then it took a little while to get back to being a human being again. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that, getting back to being a human being, because we just uh, taped an interview last week with a basketball star, John Sally, and we talked about that as well as far as mindset and then going back to being a human being. So I just find that amusing that you said that. But. Well, yeah, it's it's a fact, and, I, and I'm not, and I'm sure that it goes beyond athletes, uh, attorneys, or doctors who are in the middle of an operation, or somebody who's involved in a task uh, takes a lot of concentration. Uh, teachers, for instance, I'm sure all of them get into a certain zone and try to stay there during the period of time so that they can go from start to finish and deliver the best possible product you can. Makes total sense, and like you said, just in all other aspects of uh, work life, not just professional athletes. But, yeah, I'm curious to know, because times have obviously changed, not just in baseball, but across the board. 
but specifically for baseball. How were you a guy that worked out? Because staying 22 years in the big leagues is no easy task. But how did you like try to keep yourself in shape? Because now it's you hear it's a year long process of, to work between workouts and trainers and diets and everything else. It wasn't like that when you came up. No, it was a lot different than what it is today. Uh, today you have more specialized fields, and those who are at the top of their game in professional baseball, probably other professional sports, so I'm not that familiar with them, uh, are people that have been trained from a younger age. Uh, but in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when I was playing, uh, it was a little bit different, but it was heading in that direction. So uh, for me, I never got out of shape. Uh, but I wasn't always in sport-specific shape. That is, uh, you know, I kept, uh, I did the running, I did the weights. Uh, even in the 80s when a lot of people just looked at it and said, why are you doing that? That seems to be a waste of time. I even had one <laughs> one player tell me, Babe Ruth had 714 home runs and never lifted anything heavier than a 16-ounce glass of beer. So... <laughs> They're probably right, and uh, it was just the way that I did things. It worked for me. It didn't work for everyone. But staying in shape was the key, and then realizing how much time you needed to get in sports-specific shape for the sport you're playing was something that I learned at a very early age. Well, do you remember when you would – flip that switch to being just in shape to, okay, now i got to start getting ready for the year? Well, it was a gradual thing, so it wasn't a, the matter of flipping a switch uh, in the 80s, and that was the closest decade uh, to when I played to today, is uh, once you got past the holidays and maybe the second week in January, uh, and I was with the Dodgers, they held workouts at the ballpark but it was more of a press thing than it was anything else. They wanted the players to come out, put on the uniform, throw the ball, do some interviews, and uh, give the semblance of what's coming up. Spring training was usually just a month or so away before the plane left for Florida. Uh, so uh, it was it was more that than I think anything else, but for me, I took it seriously. Uh, I thought back that... in practice, I got myself in shape so that by the time I got down to spring training, I believed that I was ahead uh, training-wise of everyone else. And we'll switch off the topic in a second here, but uh, with that mentality, do you think it gave you a few extra years of playing in the big leagues and be able to be successful? You know, I'll never know that. All I know is what I did, and it's appeared to work for me, and I don't know if it would have worked for anybody else, and I don't know if I, I would have played even more years had I had I altered that training, whether I added some work to it or took away some work or even changed the the workout that I had. Uh, all I can say it was it was a different time, a different place. That's what I did, and you can look at the results yourself. Yeah, the numbers at least with uh, professional sports like baseball and football and stuff like that, there are a lot of things. You can look at the numbers, as you said there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I heard an interesting story because doing research, I try to look for, besides reading a book, which is I'm bringing in the right-hander. 
which you guys should check out, Amazon, all that fun stuff, Barnes & Noble, check out the book. I, I saw re- recently, doing my homework, you told a story about when you first came up in the major leagues for the St. Louis Cardinals. And you're, you're a Missouri boy, and you remember looking out into the stands and seeing an area you, you would sit in as a fan, teenager and everything else, growing up a Cardinals fan. How surreal was that for you to be able to go, wow, you know, I'm playing for my hometown team. You know, it's hard to hard to put it in words if if no one else has ever experienced it. But the best thing I can say is that I grew up playing Little League ball, and I can't begin to count the number of players or kids that I played against in Little League who all, that, who all had that Major League dream. Uh, none of us knew the reality of it, but as time went on, I kept the dream, and others kind of, well, they played, but they knew that they didn't have the ability to go much further than where they were. So the important thing for them was to play in school and probably parlay that into a college scholarship. That's what was important for them. But for me, I, I looked beyond that. Uh, fortunately, I had the talent and I had I listened to the right people, and it, it helped me develop uh, – the ability to play ball and go into the minor leagues and make my way to the major leagues. But you bring up an interesting point there, Jerry, uh, about knowing if you have the talent or whatnot to make that next step, whether it be past college into the minors or even up to the major leagues. Was there a certain point with your trajectory that you knew, hey, I might have something here, I might be able to do something with this? Well, you don't know for sure. All that you know is this is where you are today, and what can I do today to make myself a little bit better? Uh, and that's the mentality I took. Who I don't know anybody that has a long-range plan and can say for sure that uh, that they're going to achieve everything they set out to do. Uh, it's a building process, and you do it day by day. That's definitely for sure, and that's for all walks of life, look what we were talking about earlier. But the turnaround for you was what, 18 months, the 24 months between graduating high school to being in the major leagues? No, 27. Okay, so yeah, you're still within a little over two year process there. That talk about a grown up uh, <laughs> dose of reality, huh? In terms of not only sports, but in life, right? Well, I was 20 years old when I got to the big leagues for the first time, 19 when I went to my first spring training. Uh, and I knew in that spring training it was just two years ago that I was playing in high school. And here I was dressing in the same locker room that the same guys who I listened to on the radio were dressing. I knew all of them because I'd heard their names, I had their baseball cards, and I read the newspapers. So I knew them. They really didn't know much about me. But uh, I stuck around and got to know them and became part of their world. And for I'm only uh, 35, Jerry, but an interesting name that you would have been in that era with, especially with the Cardinals, is Bob Gibson. How intimidating was a guy like him, especially as a young kid come in when you did? 
Well, there was the personal side and then there was the professional side. When he worked, you know, he worked. He kept that focus, but he also had an edge about him personally, and it kind of put up a wall between him and somebody that would come by casually to have a conversation. And he was not one to to sit with somebody and have an idle conversation about the weather. If someone had some business with him or had to do something with him, then he would sit and give them the time. Uh, but he, he just wasn't one of those to stop and talk to fans or talk to anybody. Uh, he just had a way about him that was more business, and that's the way he wanted it. Understandable. Uh, speaking of which, uh, I know he's had some uh, health issues over recent time here. Have you by chance heard from him or know anything how he's doing? No, I sure don't. I haven't read yeah. anything in the papers uh, usually when somebody has an illness, uh, they, they like to keep it personal, and they don't yeah. want to make it public or give updates. Uh, that's with most people. Then there are other people who can't report it enough. So yeah. that's his, just his personal preference. Yeah, and I totally understand that because we've all been there. But, you know, I, we do hope that he's doing okay and best as possible. So, obviously... There's been so much that you've done, like broadcasting, coaching, playing. Is there something that really stands out besides the no-hitter or the World Series, or are those two things you go, wow, I really did something? Well, if you stick around long enough, a lot of good things are going to happen, and then there are going to be some things that uh, that happen to you that you just shake your head and say, I never would have aspired to do something like that. So. Uh, it's it's just one of those things, and it's part of it's part of the process. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. Uh, it doesn't matter how well you prepare, how well you execute. On a given night, somebody's going to be better than you. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, there are some pinnacles that players try to reach. And aside from being as good as you can possibly be. Uh, making an all-star team is is something that is quite an honor, and playing in the World Series is, is something else that's another quite uh, another honor. That's a dream come true. And uh, the postseason awards, if you're fortunate enough to be selected, that's something that one day you can step back and say, yeah, I had a pretty good year that year. Um, so uh, you put all those things together, and you realize that there's been less than 20,000 people who have played the game of baseball professionally, I guess, since they started counting, and that's well over 150 years. And when you consider that about 8,000, a little better than 8,000 were pitchers, and then if I were to take a look and see where I fit in among all the guys who've ever pitched a game, then I begin to realize the scope of things by putting it in that perspective and take some of the big stats such as games won, games lost, or strikeouts, or shutouts, any of those topics, and you see where I where I am, and I'm in the top 1%. So it's more than just being there. It's, it's making a difference and putting my name forward uh, for the accomplishments that I did. It's just one way as a measurement that one could say that over the years that I was at the top of my profession. 
Yeah, and I, I, we mentioned those stats in the intro that we take prior to talking to you. But I, like you mentioned earlier, we were talking about earlier, just uh, growing up in the St. Louis area and getting to the big leagues. So when you put things in the scope, that's got to be like mind-blowing, like you said, when you start breaking down everything and going, well, not only as a kid that I hope to get there, but I was part of that 1%. Yeah, that and it's and it's there for everybody to see. So, if someone wants to take that same perspective and then look up the numbers and say, you know, those those are pretty good numbers, and uh, so I guess you did have a pretty good career. And I'd have to say, oh yeah, yeah. In in that perspective, I did. Well, how about from the personal uh, perspective in terms of yeah, you say, hey, I, you know, I did okay, but. For that, for your name to be there to the end of uh, sports records there, for like your kids, your grandkids, and that's got to be pretty special for that, for your family lineage to be able to see, hey, look what dad did or look what pop did, you know? Well, I, I don't know if the grandkids have done that. I don't even know if my kids have done it. Uh, I don't ask. It's just one of those things that I did if the topic ever comes up. Yeah, then I'll make mention of it and leave it at that. Uh, but it's what I did. It's not necessarily who I am in their eyes. In their eyes, I'm I'm their dad or That's I'm the grandpa. Yep, you're just in that role, particular role. Mm-hmm. Uh, but getting back into pitching there, you played with a, especially within the Dodger organization, there's at least two great catchers that you think of that you played with, Steve Yeager and Mike Sosha. What's the difference between a, those kind of catchers that are so intense but very talented as well? Uh, two different personalities. Uh, Jaeger was a personality, and he liked to work fast. He took control of everything and had a had a scope about the ball game, knowing where everybody was supposed to be. And he, defensively, I think the only catcher that I could say in that period that was better as far as being an all-around catcher, might have been Johnny Bench. This is defensively. Of course, Bench was something else. Uh, if you add in the offense and the fact that he had a, a certain leadership ability that was considered second to none. And then you take a look at Mike Sosha, not quite a home run hitter, but someone who was thoughtful and to remember pitching situations from not only last night but the previous series and sometimes the series and matchups that happened years ago. And and he could instantly spot something with the whole pitching staff of individual pitchers and come out and talk to you and say, let's make this adjustment, let's make it here right now, and I think everything is going to be okay. Jaeger was a bit more reserved about that. He took care of things that he could handle. So it was two very good number one catchers on on any club, except for the one if you happen to follow bench. And and with that, uh, they happened to play on the same team. So one being left-handed, one being right-handed, it gave the Dodgers behind the plate for a series of 10 to 12 years probably as much stability as you're going to find anywhere in baseball. Well, as a pitcher, how much does that help you with having that stability? 
Well, yeah, because uh, it helps the thinking process. They may see something at the plate that I don't see out in the mound. And when you have two different perspectives of one situation, then you can blend both and come out more times than not with a positive result. That That's so true because uh, Jason Kendall, we talked to a couple of years ago when his book came out as well. And hearing that perspective from a catcher's point of view is really interesting as a baseball and sports nerd myself. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's almost like as Jason put it to me, the game within the game, uh-huh. which makes total sense. But when you guys won the World Series, yeah, I believe it was what eighty-one. Not was looking 81? at my notes here. Yes, you guys, a uh, couple of you, made the loop, such as the Tonight Show and a few other Mike Sullivan Show and all those the TV appearances, doing some music. And I heard a story on this one particular interview, the Tucker Factor. What, what was going on with this, these appearances? Well, when you're out of your element and asked to do something in a public, in a public uh, forum, such as appearing on a TV show that has millions of viewers every night, probably the, uh, the most watched late night show, uh, yeah, you're going to be a little bit nervous, and Pucker Factor refers to that. That means just how tight you are before <laughs> the music begins, and you have to sing those first notes. So that's exactly what that was all about. But if what? we had we had no problem pitching in front of um, – I had no problem pitching in front of 56,000 screaming fans in Los Angeles. Uh, I just felt comfortable – in that venue, but uh, going on TV and singing something that's out of my element, yeah, that's a whole different story, and I bet anybody could certainly understand that. You're comfortable doing what you do, but if you're asked to do something else and the world's there to take a look at it, yeah, yeah you're going to get a bit nervous. And you mentioned that, you know, you were comfortable in your element about pitching in front of a sold-out Dodger Stadium, but did you ever think about the scope of things as far as well, I'm pitching about in front of a sold out stadium. I got maybe millions watching on TV and or listening on the radio and just did that ever get to you? No, it never got to me. It uh, I know a lot of people warn players don't think about those things, just think about the game. Uh, I took the opposite approach. Uh, I acknowledged that there was pressure and I acknowledged that all eyes of the baseball world at that moment were on me if I happened to be the pitcher. And I welcomed it. And I said, here it is. This is what you wanted to do. This is what you dreamed of. So let's go ahead and do what you do best and and see how you come out because that's the situation that you want. Now, if you're a ball player and you can't appreciate that kind of situation, well, you should be doing something else because uh, that's what it's all about, getting to the getting to the World Series and doing well and then taking those memories that'll stay with you the rest of your life with you. Which brings me to when you're talking about the fans, another story I had heard doing homework here. There was a particular instance up in San Francisco again that I believe you told where Tommy Lasorda, who was a Northeast guy like myself, fined you 50 bucks 
What, what's that story there? <laughs> that probably was in San Francisco because I acknowledged some fans the day after I pitched the no-hitter when I came in from right field, which was the entrance to the field from our clubhouse, and made my way all the way to the dugout. And, he, and there was this old thing with the Dodgers and the Giants uh, about how they hated one another. And I guess that came from New York. And anybody that was in the organization, when the team was in Brooklyn or even in the early years of Los Angeles, seemed to carry that with them. I came from another organization, and I never really understood those rivalries because winning a ball game against them didn't count any more than winning a ball game against well, somebody who wasn't considered a rival. You play 162 games, even though you play against the Giants, so many of them during the year, they don't count any more than what uh, the game does against, let's say, San Diego or Atlanta. So I just didn't give any credence to those kinds of things. I, I think sports writers like to write about them. I think ball clubs like to promote it because that means ticket sales. Uh, and to have this rivalry kind of thing adds another dimension uh, to to the sport because they have them in all sports, the arch rivals. Well, that's that's all well and good. But for me, when I'm out there doing the game, I could care less uh, who it is uh, geographically that I'm pitching against. You just focus on pitching in that game and yeah, you got to win. Trying to win the game. Yeah, exactly. And I'm guessing another point kind of peace being in New York and such. I could definitely see that, especially with a guy like Lasorda, who was with the Dodgers since they were in Brooklyn, and like you said, the Giants were in New York as well. And, you know, I could put that train of thought together. Mm-hmm. But post-career post here, and I know I only got a few more minutes with you, but did you have more fun doing TV or radio for uh, talking about the game and broadcasting? Well, you know, it's ask, that's kind of like asking me, which hand do you like better, your right hand or your left hand? And both are indispensable. Now, with regards uh, radio or TV, TV is um, we follow where the cameras take us in a lot of cases. In some cases, you can direct them because you have a talkback switch in the booth, and you could tell somebody, I see something going on here. Could you get a camera on it so I can talk about it? And you can direct things as you go along. It's just an added dimension. In radio, your speech pattern conjures up visions of people listening on their car radio or in a room or wherever they happen to be. They may be mobile themselves, couldn't watch it, but you have to paint the pictures in their mind of what's happening. So it means that you have to be a bit more descriptive. Uh, so you approach both sides accordingly. And, for instance, on a play that you would call if you were doing play-by-play on TV and you see a ground ball a shortstop, it would be something like a, a two-hopper to short, throw to first, and we have two men out in the inning. Whereas if you see it on radio... Uh, it's a bit more descriptive. You would say if the shortstop's name is Smith, like in Ozzie Smith. Art hit the Ozzie to his left on two hops, grabs it, fires all in one motion, and nips him at first by less than a half step. 
see the difference? Yeah, it's on more of the storytelling of it. Yeah, on on TV, people can see that. On radio, you have to create that vision. Well, folks, I don't want to hold him up all day, and I know I could talk baseball with such a guy. Jerry, if people want to see, cause, and I should mention this as well, uh, Jerry is also an, has been an avid photographer. If people want to see some of the photography you've done or see what's going on in your world or maybe even get the book, where's the best spot people can find you? Well, if you go on Flickr, F-L-I-C-K-R, not E-R as you would expect it to be, uh, I have over 1,400 pictures posted, and many of those are ballparks that no longer exist. It's just a whole lifetime of memories all stored for anybody to see. There's also some videos there as well. Plus, I'm on Facebook. I'm easy enough to follow. Uh, if you want a book, obviously, you could find it, as you said earlier, on Amazon, maybe even at a walk-in bookstore such as Barnes & Noble. But if you want a personally signed, brand spanking new copy, go to jerryroyce.com, and on the entry page, you'll see exactly how to get one. So that covers it. That's the ad that you have for listening to this interview. Jonathan, thank you for bringing that up. Of course. Got to bring that up, you know, get you some plugs in and sell some books still and see the photos and everything else. Absolutely. So, Jerry, thank you so much. Thank you. The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Blazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter. Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Hi, I'm Bill Ripken, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. <laughs> 